Our Old Covenant reading this evening comes from the prophet Nahum. Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heads Heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And will lift up your skirt over your face. And I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Our New Testament, New Covenant reading comes from Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load." Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The grass withers and the flowers of the field, they fade and they fall, but this, the word of our God... From Nahum 3 and and from Galatians chapter 6, it endures forever. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come this evening to worship you. And in doing so, we come 
to hear the word that you have for us, as you have by your Spirit given us your holy scriptures. As we come to your word, Lord, we confess that we are often dull, we are often blind. And so, Lord, we ask that you would shine the light of your Spirit into our hearts and into our minds, that we would understand and that we would see, that we would hear as you would have us to do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you turn back to Nahum chapter 3, that is what the portion of Scripture that we'll be looking at this evening. Now, Nahum 2, that we looked at last week, foretold of Nineveh's destruction, and if you remember, it ended with the declaration that sealed the city's fate. The Lord declared, I am against you. Chapter 3 continues on in the foretelling of Nineveh's destruction, but rather than just rehashing the same information over again, Nahum, by the Holy Spirit, delves into the wickedness that has justly warranted the Lord's heavy hand of judgment upon the city of Nineveh, and by extension, the nation, the empire of the Assyrians. And here in the first seven verses, we find an important lesson regarding the downfall of Nineveh, the city that has brought about his own demise. The city's demise comes as a result of its own sin, its own self-indulgent wickedness, so that Nineveh will reap what Nineveh has sown. I want to look at this passage this evening in uh, three parts. First, in verses 1 and verse 4, the sins of the city. Then in verses 2 and 3, the fruit of sin. And then finally, verses 5 to 7, the Lord, the adversary. Nam begins here. In chapter 3, verse 1, with an exclamation, Woe to the bloody city. Woe is an expression of lament when used outside of the prophets uh, to mourn for the dead. But when used in the prophets, and here in Nahum in particular, it in some sense is Nahum declaring the dead. He's declaring Nineveh as good As dead. And for good reason, he makes this declaration. Sin brings death. And here, Nahum sets out the case against Nineveh as he declares the nature of that city. What is the city of Nineveh like? We've mentioned it a time or two as we've gone through. We've recounted some of their sins, some of their practices. But here, Nahum wants to make it abundantly clear. The first and perhaps most evident of her sins lies in the title given to Nineveh here in verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, or the city of bloods. Now cities are often places where the greatest human achievements are on display. Just think of it. 
Think about the, the pyramids in Cairo or the Parthenon in Athens. Think about those grand cathedrals that took generations to build in Rome. Cities are places where people come together with all of their intellect, with, with all of their creativity and their strength to do great things. In architecture, in technology, in medicine, in art, and so on and so forth. Yet those same abilities in the hearts of sinners can be used for monstrous wickedness. People come together to do and to work to the glory of God or to their own glory. So the city in the scriptures is often represented as a concentration of corruption that is mutually reinforcing. Think of the city of Babel. What happened with Babel? The inhabitants came together against the Lord. And that, that concentration of corruption then becomes an echo chamber. An echo chamber of lies and sin. And so sin breeds more sin and more sin. It's the proverb, right? Bad company corrupts good morals. But on a grand scale. Not simply for the individual, but for the entire society. And of course, the problem isn't the city per se, but the sinners who make the city their abode. And join together, not only practicing such bloodthirsty acts, but giving approval to those who practice such things. And thereby work together to trample and to destroy life. Nineveh is a bloodthirsty city. Ready and willing, eager even, to shed blood for the sake of gaining whatever they desire. Their inscriptions that we have in the annals of the kings that we have tell of their culture of death as they trampled upon life. They shed the blood of anyone who stood in their way or whose blood could procure their desires. Those gory stories of death that they thought of as glory stories, the stories that they wanted their children and their children's children and their children's 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 children to remember them by. That is their heritage. Their city was established and perpetuated by blood. That city at the same time was a city built upon lies. It was not always in their self-interest to kill, but it was always in their self-interest to manipulate people with lies and with broken promises so that along with excelling in bloodshed, the city excelled in falsehood. Now we get examples of that throughout the scriptures. And one such example we have is in 2 Kings 18 where an emissary of the king of Assyria tried to turn the people of Judah against their own king, Hezekiah. Verses 31 and 33 describe the deceit of Nineveh. This is what the emissary of the king of Assyria said. He said, Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. 
Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come to take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Such were the lies of Nineveh, where mouths spoke not for the truth, but for selfish gain, by flattery, speaking with fingers crossed, speaking with intentional ambiguities, twisting words, brokering deals with no, no intent to follow through, all with the intent of victimizing any who would listen. So that being in that city was like being in a city where everyone around you has daggers ready to pierce you through from every direction. A city of lies built by the children of the father of lies. The city of Nineveh with its apparent power and its wealth, promises of prosperity and advantage. But as the verse, as verse 1 there literally says, all of it is a lie. It's lies. It's, it's smoke and mirrors. Because, of course, every illusion of prosperity comes from abusing and victimizing. Not only is it a bloody city and a city of lies, it's also the city of plunder. In terms of its assets, Nineveh was built upon the pilfered goods of their victims. Their endless treasures, as we saw back in, ver in chapter 2, verse 9, came to them as treasures that they took from other cities that they had attacked and that they had plundered. They had attacked and they had killed and they had stole what rightly belonged to another and took it back to their glorious city and paraded it around as if it had been honestly gained. We'll come to verses 2 and 3 in a minute, which speaks of Nineveh's demise. But first, looking down at verse 4, we get a most crass yet most apt description of Nineveh's sin. Nineveh is a city of harlotry. Verse 4 attributes the carnage and destruction of verses uh, 2 and 3 to this. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute. The blood, the lies, the plunder, the abuses, and the oppression is described in the metaphor of, of prostitution. In what way was Nineveh like a prostitute? We see here that there's a political dimension of it. Right? Politically, she enticed weak nations to ally themselves with her, to find protection in her, to seek her wealth, and to be enticed by her promises of prosperity and glory. 
which really in the end, right, that was the promise that was being made to the people of Judah if they'd turn against Hezekiah. But really in the end, it only led to oppression and broken promises and bloodshed. But of course, there's more than that. It's not just a a political kind of prostitution that's going on here. Verse 4 brings out the theological aspect of her harlotry as well. She is outwardly desirable to the eyes. She is graceful and she is charming. But that charming is not in the sense that, that she's pleasant or that she's sweet. But she has a deadly charm. As one commentator says, she is a mistress of witchcraft. That's what kind of charms we're talking about. We're talking about sorcery and witchcraft. We're talking about the dark arts that she practices as she leads people into the temple of Satan himself. So she intends to appeal to the sinful hearts of men and women that they would give themselves wholesale to her, that they would indulge themselves to seek in her every lustful desire that she promises to fulfill, but which will only kill and will only destroy. Like Esau who sells his soul for a bowl of stew, her shapely allure appeals to the sensual desires of sinners and is calling her citizens out in the rest of the world to come and to gain the whole world through her and yet forfeit their souls. The Old Testament's filled with this metaphor, but often it's reserved for God's people as they described as they're described as whoring after the false gods of the nations. But here it is not God's covenant people who are charged as harlots, but Nineveh, who like the cities before her and like the cities after her, seek to tempt sinners in all ages to disregard the living and true God and to instead worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. To give their lives for money and success and sex and fame and power and glory. Rather than being a blessing to all the families of the earth, the mistress of witchcraft seeks to kill and to destroy. And because of this, she has betrayed the nations. And God's people in particular have been betrayed by her. Have been brought in to her idolatries. and She will receive the due penalty of her error. Those are the sins of Nineveh. Look at the fruit of Her sin, verses 2 and 3. Now there's some question here as to the reference in verses 2 and 3. Is it a description of Assyria's destructive force? 
Is that what's being talked about? Is this what Assyria is doing? The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot? Or is this another vivid image of the army of judgment coming upon Nineveh? Well, it fits well with Nahum's style, as we've seen, this abrupt shift, as he so often does, that would refer to Nineveh's destruction, which I think is what's happening here. But the question of who it is makes the very point that Nahum is intending by outlining the sins that are in the midst of her sin being described in verses 1 and 4. And that's the fruit that grows out of the midst of her sins. And that fruit we see is here in verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3 here situated in the midst of the charges against them. This is the fruit. This is the fruit of what Nineveh has done. This is the fruit of what sin produces. It produces no lasting power. It produces no peace and no prosperity, but rather produces death. It produces heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over bodies. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the wages of sin is death. The prostitute Nineveh once prided herself with her power and her wealth. Right? It, it, it was at one point her chariot wheels that rumbled. It was her whips that were cracking. It was her horses and her chariots bounding. It was her horsemen charging, her gleaming swords and glittering spears. It was her glory over the gory battlefields. But now the tables have turned. What was sown will soon be harvested as the Lord descends upon her and she receives from his hand what she has thrust upon her enemies. And so we are left after these charges and the fruit of her sin with the surety of her judgment. The Lord declares again, as he did back in chapter 2, verse 13. The Lord says, I am against you. I am against you, Nineveh. And will turn the bloodthirsty city into a city of blood spilled for the sins of its inhabitants. Now, we could have all kinds of thoughts and opinions about Nineveh and their practices. All kinds of moral calculations that we could be thinking about. It's interesting, as I've been studying through uh, Assyria and Nineveh and the stuff that they've done and and reading through uh, the atrocities of this civilization, I've read commentators and historians talking about Nineveh and their bloodthirsty practices, how they would 
cut off the limbs of their enemies and spread the skins of their enemies on the walls of their cities, and so on and so forth. And then they compare Nineveh and the Assyrians to the people of Israel. And guess what they say? They say that Israel was so much worse than Assyria. They come away actually with a sympathetic view to the Ninevite cause. Right? Saying that it was far worse for Israel. Because Israel practiced genocide. Whereas Nineveh just killed people indiscriminately. And somehow that's better. Now that kind of moral reasoning has caused many to question and to doubt God's goodness throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Is God good? Can he be trusted? How could he have judgment upon these people and not those people? And maybe for good reason they do, so far as mere reason goes. So long as our moral sensibilities are captivated by the wisdom of this world, perhaps we will think, oh yeah, maybe Nineveh wasn't that bad. Maybe Israel is really the enemy. So long as our ethical principles are based upon our own thoughts and our own feelings, so that we can have the ability to flex the meaning of evil and the meaning of wrong into whatever shape seems right in our own eyes. Did the people of Nineveh see themselves as evil? But you see here, Nahum's reasoning doesn't come from his own thoughts and feelings about what is morally right or morally wrong. It comes directly from the Lord himself. In fact, it is the Lord himself who declares these things upon Nineveh. And the Lord of hosts declares that he is against Nineveh. According to what she has sown, so shall she reap. The Lord has declared what shall be of Nineveh at his hand. What will become of this once glorious city? She's going to be exposed. Both publicly, before the whole world, and to herself. Right? Sin is self-deceptive by nature. And before her own eyes, the illusion of her lies to herself will be brought to an end and she will see her true state. And all the nations around, they will see her shame, all that she has done. They will see her underhanded deals. They'll see her lies and deceit and will be brought into international light. Nineveh's hidden filth and inner abominations the Lord will thrust them upon her. She'll be covered in her own filth. She will be openly mocked. She will become a spectacle. Not as an alluring temptation, but as a symbol of shame. Pomp and pride will be replaced with disgrace, and there will be no one to grieve for her. 
Nobody will miss Nineveh. No one will lament. So what does that mean for God's people? How would the Lord tell Judah these things? Of course, as we have seen throughout Nahum's prophecy, it means that God is delivering his people from oppression. It is good news that is to be heard and to be believed. It is God being faithful to his promises to his people. But it also here serves as a warning to them. It serves as a reality check as they look at Nineveh, who in this moment seems to be untouchable and seems to be very beautiful and enticing. Now remember that Judah was afflicted by the Lord with the oppression of Assyria because Judah had fallen into the temptations of the very sins of Nineveh. At root, they had fallen in love with the prostitute, just like the other nations. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They followed the course of their neighbors and began to worship idols. After Hezekiah, his son Manasseh led Judah into spiritual ruin. Listen to how he led the people. 2 Chronicles 33, 3-6. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals and made Ashtaroth. And worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven, and in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And here, as the Lord exposes Nineveh, as the Lord exposes the, pro, the prostitute for who she is, God's people are to look upon her and to see through her bloodthirsty lies. They, they've already been down that road. They've already been enticed by the prostitute. They've already received the affliction of the Lord. Now they're being delivered. And Nahum's reminding them of who this prostitute is. Don't go down that road again. It only brings death. Much like the father in the Proverbs warning his son of the ways of the harlot. Nahum, in declaring the death of Nineveh, is warning the people of Judah. And warning us by extension. Of the deadly charm of this world. For the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
That as God's people, we would not again submit ourselves to the yoke of slavery, to the sin that so easily entangles us. Those who have been redeemed by the Lord have been set free. Judah, you're being set free from oppression. Don't go back down that road. Christian, you've been set free from the power of sin and death, from the power of the prostitute's allure. Worldly wealth and power are are death traps. That prostitute imagery comes up again in Scripture, doesn't it? In Revelation, where we're not, not Nineveh, not Assyria, but Babylon becomes the hallmark picture of prostitution, of the prostitute who, who leads people astray with all her charms. Here in Nahum 3, Nineveh, is the horrid example. You see, for the people of God, Nineveh is not their city. Christians, this world does not contain your city. Your city is the heavenly Zion. Your city, the lasting city, is the heavenly Jerusalem. And it's not a bloodthirsty city. Rather, it's a blood-bought city. Where your Savior was shamed for you. Where he took upon himself your sin and your curse to lead you into a city not with daggers ready to stab you, but a city of refuge. A city of peace. A city that is founded upon blood, not blood that calls for judgment like the blood of Abel crying out from the the ground. But the blood of Jesus that, that cries out, peace. Peace. A city whose founder and builder is God. A city whose king doesn't shed innocent blood to satisfy the appetites of his citizens or himself, but shed his own blood in order that those who would enter that city would find everlasting life and peace, where the promises that are made are true and always come to pass. And where all the blessings that he bought with his blood for his people surely are delivered to them by his Holy Spirit. As we behold and rest in the surety of our deliverance, which we have received in Jesus, even as we look at the surety of the deliverance that was wrought by God from Nineveh for the sake of Judah. Let us also, by the mercy of God and in grateful response to his salvation, 
flee temptation. Flee the temptations that we know are empty and that we know are deadly. And let us walk in a manner worthy of our city, founded upon our Savior, our gracious King, to whose glory alone. Let's pray. Father, again we see in your holy word that it is Christ alone who is our refuge and our hope. That were we left to ourselves, our fate would be the fate of Nineveh. That we given over to our sinful desires, would construct for ourselves a city just like Nineveh. Yet, Lord, you have broken us out of this kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, the kingdom of light. Lord, would you cause us by your Spirit to walk in your way, to be wise, and to flee temptation as we cling to Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.